friends, colleagues, and lovely spooky individuals. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I am Drake, and Kyle's not here today. So <laughs> uh, it's just me uh, and my lovely guest, a good friend of mine, uh, an amazing colleague, uh, amazing researcher, Dr. Caitlin Goldsmith from the University of British Columbia. She is a uh, instructor at the University of British Columbia. She's teaching human sexuality. Her research focuses on factors associated with sexual satisfaction, well-being, uh, body image, mindfulness, and sexual communication. And what we're going to be talking about today is long-distance relationships, her work on that. So welcome, Caitlin, to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Drake. Yeah, I'm really stoked to have you on, Caitlin. Uh, we've known each other for five, six years maybe oh, now? yeah, at least. It's- it's been a while. So like my first my first ever conference, uh, we met and we talked about your work on long distance relationships and now it's come full circle. So let's get into it. Why are you interested in long distance relationships? And we'll talk about, you know, the implications as on sexuality as well. But why long distance relationships? What got you into that work? Yeah. So when I started um, grad school, I had to move away from my now husband. <laughs> and and at the time, I, I didn't know really what I wanted to study. I knew it would be something about sexual well-being and sexual satisfaction, but I didn't really have like a great topic. But when I was when I moved, and I moved to New Brunswick from Vancouver, so the complete opposite <laughs> side of the country. Four hour time difference. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, time difference, everything. <laughs> and like, I was, you know, trying to deal with this with my husband. He had, at the time, he was in law school in Alberta. So we had this time difference. Um, we're both in these totally different places and just trying to make this work. So I'm Googling. I'm like, how do you deal with long-distance relationships? How do you make, keep your relationship alive? What do you do? And mm-hmm. the reality is there's not actually, like at the time, there wasn't very much information. And everything that I read about long-distance relationships was like very discouraging and very oh, negative. Sure. It was like, yeah, yeah. it's not going to work out. It's like doomed. So <laughs> I remember our first meeting, Caitlin, uh, you were at, you were doing a poster on your work on long distance relationships. And I, I, I think I laughed. I'm like, they don't work, do they? Yeah. <laughs> and you got, I think, you, I don't think you got mad at me, but you're like, no, you're wrong. You're so wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely what I found. And when I did a content analysis of like media headlines and media representations of long distance relationships, that was what I found, right? It's, you know, all of the undertones are that it's really challenging. It's difficult. It's not going to work. Um, you know, you might as well give up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, your case, uh, uh, how long were you into that relationship when you, uh, as a couple moved away, like moved separated from each other? Were you, uh, in close proximity before then for a certain amount of years or was it always long distance? Yeah, we lived together. We lived together for a year. And before that, we were dating for two years. So we had a good three year base. (laughs) And then we moved apart for four years. Right. So pretty much the length of what you had plus a year uh, was committed to long distance then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And by the time I moved back, it's like we spent more time long distance than we had in close yeah. proximity. <laughs> That's really interesting. So, I mean, I have a bunch of questions and I'm sure we're going to get into them, but let's let's define what a long distance relationship is categorized because I know some people that might consider long distance being, you know, an hour away or even 20 minutes away because they're like, I'm, why would I go that far, you know, drive that far for 20 minutes? Yeah. You're talking about something very different here, but what, how do you categorize long distance relationships in research? Yeah. And that was a really difficult question actually, because if you look at the long distance uh, relationship literature, people describe them totally differently. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Some people um, like there are studies that look at how many kilometers away, whether you have the same telephone area code, um, you know, how often you're able to see each other in person. Like there's just so many different it makes it challenging. Right. In research um, to figure out how they're defining it. But there was a great um, there was a great paper by Pistol and Roberts that came out in 2010. And I based it on their definition, which is kind of like a comprehensive definition saying um, you live far enough apart that it would be practically impossible to um, see each other every day. Like you couldn't like drive to see the person or, you know what I mean? Right. It wouldn't be feasible to kind of just, you know, after work, go find, go see them or like just live your regular life and then see them on that day. Exactly. Right. So that could be, I mean, that could be three hour drive away maybe Mm -hmm. like, I mean, yeah, something that's like not feasible to do if you were to want to do it. Yeah. Cool. So definitely, um, across the Canadian country, I uh, would classify as long distance then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we've got a huge country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like going across like five countries in the like in, in different Europe. areas, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um so so I'm interested, I mean we're gonna get into it. What is your perception of, you know, how do you long distance relationships differ from <laughs> non-long distance relationships other than you know the fact that you can't see each other every day Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think um like obviously there's the challenge of distance and sort of like the adjustments that you have to make to be able to communicate to a partner across this distance so surprisingly there are not as many differences as you might expect So the main things that I find in my research are, one, we see that they do engage in a lot more online communication. And this is both like just generally and also sexually. So like online sexual behaviors. So we see a lot more like sexting, um, you know, video sexual behavior, things like that, which is Mm -hmm. probably expected. Yeah, Um, I would expect that. Yeah. Yeah. And then a lot less of the um, in-person, you know. Uh, right. events like interactions and sexual activities as well mm-hmm. and so do do these relationships i mean i guess the question is would you ever consider a long distance relationship to be a long-term sustainable thing or is it more of a let's get through this so that we can eventually not be long distance anymore yeah and that's getting into like predictors of what makes long distance relationships feasible versus not. And I think Mm. you've tapped into one that's really, um, it's a really good predictor of whether long distance relationships are going to work out. And that is if there is a defined end date for the long distance. And we find that when there isn't, and it's just kind of like, we don't know, you know, if and when we're ever going to be able to be together, those ones are more likely to fail. Right. And I think, you know, that makes sense to me too. Because if like we have to get through this school to better ourselves, like in your situation, you know, four years, five years, whatever the case is, um, then you're like, okay, we can get through this and then we're going to eventually not have to deal with this anymore. But others that are like, you know, I have to move for whatever reason and I don't know if we'll ever be back in the same area. That's a very different situation. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that that uh, defined end date or end goal is so important? I think just that sense of like, hope for the future right and even if sometimes you know sometimes you end up having to stay longer than you Mm -hmm. expect um but even just knowing that there is that end date i mean all the cognitions around relationships are so important like how you view the relationship how you think about the relationship and what you think about the future of your relationship and that's such a key one for long distance and so so how do 
people plan for it? What, what are they thinking for their relationships? Is it like uh, only serious relationships can handle long distance relationships or, you know, can, can more casual relationships withstand that? Yeah. And, and that's a great, that's a great question because I think, um, you know, one of the things for me was like, we already had our relationship and then it's like, okay, can we commit to do this? But what we see, right. Is that people who begin a more casual relationship, um, in the long distance setting, it doesn't necessarily have as great of outcomes. (laughs) (laughs) Is how long you've been seeing each other a strong indicator of whether or not it'll work. Like in your case, I mean, I'm going to stop using you as an example. <laughs> Let's you. I laughed. I think I laughed when I first met you, Caitlin, because I was also doing a semi long distance relationship at the time, yeah. which was, you know, four or five hours away drive. And I thought to myself, you know, if how long I met, I had met my girlfriend a few months before um, we had decided to do some sort of long distance because I had moved towns for school. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking to myself, and I think I was thinking at the time, how long do you have to be with somebody to make a sustainable long distance relationship last or, or, you know, to get through a long distance relationship or is it really, does it really matter about the time? Is it more about, you know, how you think of that relationship? Yeah, I think both um, could be, would be a factor, but I think mm-hmm. knowing the end date of when you could be, uh, when you can reunite is more important than how long um, you've known each other before. Because for example, if you're just, um, you know, just newly dating someone, that energy and that excitement can take you a long way, right? This is why people have like online romances and how powerful they are, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you get that like honeymoon kind of period, Mm -hmm. right? Where like you're just obsessed with the person and and maybe if you are forced to do a long distance relationship at while you have that kind of energy, that might be actually okay (laughs) for like, it might carry over to, you know, your commitment to maintaining that until it's over. Exactly. But here's the thing. So, and we found, I find this with long distance, uh, people in long distance relationships tend to idealize their partner more than people that are not in long distance relationships. And what we see is that actually with long distance relationships, unfortunately, there's a high percentage that actually break up once they're able to be together. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about that. Why do you think that is? I think, you know, because when you're apart, you're able to sort of create this image of the person, Mm -hmm. you know, and you see all the positives, but you don't get the realities of, you know, all those little annoying things they do and being with them all the time. And, um, and that comes up later and sort of shatters that idealized version of them. I like that. And I, and I'm, I'm looking at your paper that you just published as well, Caitlin. I like the, the name of the scale is the idealistic distortion scale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that does it justice, right? Cause you're you're distorting the your image of your partner in a way, right. To make it them seem like they're kind of perfect for you or better than they are in reality. Right. Exactly. And I think that's the same thing that can happen when people, you know, start their relationships online and you kind of have maybe a curated version of that person. Maybe you, it's mostly communication and messages or it's all very, you know, it's kind of their best foot forward. Yeah. You're getting that kind of Instagram, you mm-hmm. know, highlight reel uh, version of that person. Yeah. Yeah. And with long people in long distance relationships, what they say is that when they are reunited, it's all about their relationship. They, you know, maybe they go on trips, they, they make it really special. They put in so much effort into yeah. it that isn't always realistic. Like when you're seeing somebody every day. So then when you're, you know, actually able to be with the person in close proximity, you're not getting those same exciting events and things happening. 
And I think that there's something to be learned about that for people who are in geographically close relationships, because, you know, that quality time, planned time, date nights, all those things, right? They kind of fall to the wayside when you're in a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. And they're actually, you know, really important for those relationship high points. Right. You're getting, it, it seems like you're kind of getting two extremes here. I mean, I, I, one, one point I do want to talk about as well is, so when you're in a long distance relationship, when you see your partner, as I think this is a point that I like you to expand on because it's in my head, this is kind of like why I see it as like problematic is that when you're in those long distance relationships, when you're seeing your partner, it's all that all partner stuff, right? Like you're, you're just excited to see your partner. So I imagine it's like, I'm just going to do everything for as long as I'm here with my partner and not do anything else. Exactly. And make an effort not to fight and to have sex mm. really frequently and make it amazing and, you know, yes. all of that, right? Yeah. So, so do people in long distance relationship have better sex when they see each other for the first time? (laughs) This is something that I really want to do some qualitative work on because what I found in my research is yes, they're having sex more frequently when they're together. Right. It's like a clustered effect, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But like, I want to know, is it like, are they rating this as higher quality? Like, is it, you know, different? And is that part of why it can maybe sustain them and sustain their sexual satisfaction during the other times. Like, are these right. times just so amazing that, and that's the reason, <laughs> like, I want to know that. Yeah. It's like a drought season. Whenever the drought's over, you're like, okay, you have earth shattering sex and you're like, this is the best. And you're like, okay, I can go back for a drought for a while if I'm going to get that next time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. I mean, that's a, I, every time I, t- I, I think about your work, I'm like, there's so many questions you can ask and so much stuff that you, that you're doing and thinking about. I just, it's, it's really fun to think about. And especially you brought up before we kind of got on, it's super relevant right now within the what's going on in the world today. And I think how relationships are almost starting now, which is kind of interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Starting, I mean, that's the most common people way people meet now, right? Is online. And I mean, most people, like a lot of those cases, they're able to, to meet up and do that. But I mean, now in the world we are in, it's almost like you're getting these mini kind of forced long distance patterns because people, you know, maybe they're not able to meet up. So they're messaging for longer periods of time. And that's where you get into, you know, the possibility of that idealization. So do you see that as a good or a bad thing that people are starting off like kind of like almost the reverse of what you, what you went through is like the long distance relationship first and then leading into it versus, you know, getting that kind of uh, geographically close relationship first and then leading into a long distance relationship. Yeah, I think people starting out now, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, you know, Mm -hmm. to have that idealization or to have that high of a new relationship. Um, But I think it's helpful for people to sort of just be aware of that, right? To know that there is this tendency to get into this really idealistic thinking and just to remind themselves of that because it can be a really tough crash, especially um, when we see, especially with casual relationships, right? When people go into something expecting that it's going to turn into a relationship or it's going to turn into something and then it doesn't, that's what's associated with the most dissatisfaction. Right. Yeah. You get your hopes up and then it kind of just kind of all falls to the wayside, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I, I'm I'm talking to you as a researcher and I know you're a clinician as well. So, I mean, you have some really good insight. What can you do to kind of temper those expectations? You know, the, setting up more realistic thinking uh, whenever you get down to that, you know, idealizing your partner or... Uh, how do you how do you adjust for that? Because I know I, I'm 
definitely fallen victim to that as well. I think what the reality is, is that it's, we don't want to take away from people who are having, you know, fabulous sexual experiences or like, you know, all those great highs. But I think to be realistic about what, what's, what's kind of the baseline, like what's reality. And we have, unfortunately, in our culture too, like the way we think about sex um, is like, you know, it's, it has to be so romantic and so amazing every time and everything falls into place and everybody knows what to do and, you know, how to create pleasure for the other person. And the reality <laughs> is, right. It's like, you know, it, sex is sort of like any other activity, you know, like say you want to go skiing, like some days it's like amazing. The weather is perfect. The powder's <laughs> great. Everything's amazing. Right. Other times you go, you're kind of like, Oh yeah, it was a little cold. Uh, the, you know, there were some ice patches. It wasn't the best. Right. So mm-hmm. it's the same thing. And I think people, you know, sort of have this almost like an idealized version of how sex should be. And that's where a lot of people get into um, feeling like they don't measure up or their sex life isn't where other people's is when the reality is sex is sort of just like any other activity. Right. Yeah. I, I like that. I like the way you th- say that. Cause I think that I, I fall prey to that. I think others fall prey to it as, you know, when you have a few rounds that aren't the best, let's say, yeah. <laughs> uh, with a partner, then you're like, okay, well, like, what's going on here? Why, why am I not having great sex every time? And that can be problematic for both partners, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then that impacts on your sexual self-esteem and how you're feeling. And then, of course, anytime there's like lower self-esteem or like anxiety related to sex, then that's just going to create that cycle. Right. It just sort of amplifies the next time it, it's going to happen and makes it harder to get through. Yeah. Uh, which you don't ever want it to be hard to get through sex, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that's I I love it. I think I think we should definitely like you know we haven't talked enough sex lately on on Brain Buzz, and I'm just like I'm just I feel like we need to. I feel like we 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 owe it to our listeners during COVID to talk more about sexuality and, and how to kind of get more sexual satisfaction in our relationships. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? I think I mean just like that's totally my mission is just like to make sex more talked about in general, right? We don't talk about it enough in our culture. And that's what leads to people feeling like they're not normal or feeling like they're not living up to some sort of standard when really, I mean, the odds are that you're normal. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's sometimes it's okay to be normal, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be super normal and everything here. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's talk about maybe some like, uh, some ways that you can kind of improve sexual satisfaction or like maintain like a good medium in relationships would that be a good next step then yeah for sure okay cool how do we do it (laughs) (laughs) fix fix this for us (laughs) yeah well okay at its very like most basic and fundamental level i truly believe that sex education has an impact on sexual satisfaction and on your relationships i think that education is empowerment okay yeah i absolutely agree with you right and this comes down to like even the most basic things, like as I'm teaching human sexuality, I can't even tell you how many students email me to say, this is the first time they feel like they've got good sex education. Mm-hmm. Right. And even like and that's an upper level university course. Yeah, like that's usually like 20 years old, right? Like exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I can definitely relate to that as well because I, I took this course, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and that, it was so eye opening too. It was even before I'd, I was interested in like sex research and um, got mm-hmm. into this field myself. But I thought, wow, like there's just so much that people don't know. And the issue when you don't know is that you're creating um, how you think it should be without any real knowledge. And that even comes down to the most basic things. Like I always start my course with like anatomy. 
And you think, oh, well, that's boring. Everybody knows, you know, what things are and the, the words for things and how things work. And they don't. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like a third of the class realizes what a what a vulva is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, like nobody knows the right names. Nobody no. knows like where the clitoris is. Yeah, um, the vagina is like one package. It's just one thing, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think that is something that, you know, I weave in a lot into like when I'm working with clients in my sex therapy practice, there's so much education about, you know, anatomy, about relationships, about sexual expectations. And then from there, you can really go into a discussion of like, what are your own like sexual beliefs and like attitudes towards sexuality? It's an interesting sort of reflective exercise to think about, um, where did you get your ideas about how sex should be? What are they? What are your ideas of, of all these things and sort of deconstructing them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a really interesting question, kind of, you know, thinking about where your sexual interests are coming from, yeah. uh, what your se- what sexual behaviors you tend to do, and why you do them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so many people have, you know, background of, you know, maybe not as much education as they would have liked, shame around sexuality, you know, parental influences, the media, all of these factors sort of shape, and that's like distal factors, right? That are still can have a really big impact on how people see themselves sexually and what they're, you know, how they're feeling in their sexual lives. I really like that point. It's just, you know, if you don't know, how are you supposed to improve? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, if you're never taught these things, you know, you're, or you're not openly in like asking those questions, you're never going to get those answers. Yeah. Like even just starting that conversation and just having a framework to work from. So like, I love all sorts of handouts and diagrams Mm. and all that stuff. And like (laughs) also to just like encourage people to start to incorporate a little bit of sexuality education into their week. So I say, if they're coming to sex therapy, right, if you're having some sort of sexual difficulty, um, do what you would do if you were trying to develop any other skill, right? If you were trying to take up gardening, yep. you know, you might get some books about gardening. You might go and seek out some information. You might go to the plant store, try out a few things, you know, mm-hmm. um, make a little planter, work on it. You know, it's exactly the same thing, like dedicating 15 minutes, even like 15 or 30 minutes a week to just reading a book about sexuality. And like that can also give you a framework to talk about it with your partner, right? Because then you can be like, oh, I'm reading this book. And what do you think of this? I've read this really interesting fact. What do you think? And opening up the conversation. Right. Yeah. What do you find are the most important questions that aren't being asked within couples when it comes to sexuality? You know, having worked with a lot of couples, it's shocking to me how little people communicate about sex with the person they're having sex with. <laughs> <laughs> is this is this before, during, after, all of it? All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all of the above. I think even, even at its basic level, having a discussion about what specific techniques actually work for mm-hmm. you, right? And for your partner and asking about that and how to improve on that or what we could change. Um, you know, I can't tell you, this kind of reminds me of all that literature about faking orgasm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like yep. people might think that they're doing what's working for the other person, but you really right. don't know, right? They could be faking pleasure, faking orgasm. Um, that's its whole own issue, but yeah, of course. 
it's like a band-aid right you're thinking that it's helpful for the partner but you're not getting what you want out of it and you're mm-hmm. you're misleading your partner into doing whatever they were doing <laughs> exactly exactly so having that upfront conversation of what specific you know positions techniques whatever it is that's actually working and not working yeah i hate i hate the thought of you know partners faking orgasms for for years (laughs) and being like oh i have this special move that always works (laughs) and it's really not working for them i feel so bad for them i mean that's and that's all about communication right oh yeah and i think like you say it's like a band-aid at the time but eventually you know it's like how long can you fake an orgasm for right how many years can you go before you know you really start to you know have that lowered sexual satisfaction it just seems like so much like drain on your you know sexual satisfaction your your mental like just relation satisfaction i'm sure it's draining uh to put that you know put your sexuality or your your sexual satisfaction to the side and put i I guess it's like a putting the relationship or their perception over your sexual satisfaction yeah yeah in a way and that's what the research in that area says right it's it's, seems like if it's something that you do once in a while (laughs) sort of you know end the encounter or whatever it doesn't seem to have a negative impact but if it's something that you're doing repetitively right yeah um, it's it's yeah. a negative thing yeah i mean this is a weird analogy to kind of come across but i think it reminds me of in house psychology there's the idea of like support uh and basically called protective buffering uh mm-hmm. and in a sense what protective buffering is when people are dealing with an Ill- like a couple's dealing with an illness uh one partner the healthy partner might uh protect their partner by not you know putting stress on them or not you know just doing things without them knowing mm-hmm. um and with the idea that it's helping the, the relationship but they actually see there's negative outcomes because of that right uh, because you know they're not engaging their partner they're not you know working with their partner to c- create a solution but they're just kind of going and making the executive decision that they're just going to do it on their own or or you know not tell them about it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think like when it comes to re- relationships and sexual satisfaction you need that open communication um to both enjoy it. And why wouldn't you want to both enjoy it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, it's the foundation of being able to have a positive sexual relationship. And there's people, you know, who go, who go years, you know, having dissatisfying sexual encounters or, you know, doing, engaging in sex for the sake of the relationship or because they feel they have a duty to do that um, and aren't getting those positive outcomes. So I think just opening that up for discussion at, at the most basic level can be so helpful. Okay. So I have a question for you. This, this is a kind of like a, <laughs> it's an, it's an interesting thought that I had. Um, are there people that are good at sex or are they just good at communicating and connecting with others? Hmm. Interesting. And, you know, I always like to say, you know, because I think part of that kind of goes back to one of those myths, which is, you know, some people are just born, good lovers. Yeah. Just like they're the sexual gods. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I mean, okay, maybe there are, I think those would be the minority. I don't know the stats on this, but I would, (laughs) um, I would predict that most people who are really excellent, um, lovers and they're great sexually, I think that they dedicate time to that. I think it's a skill that they develop. So and, you know, I bet you they're reading things, they're, um, you know, talking to their partner about what's working, what's not working. I bet that they've spent a lot of time in their own personal sexual exploration of their own body and mm-hmm. what works for them. And I also would bet that they are able to have a totally mind-body 
connection while they're engaging in sex. So that is, they're not distracted by other things. They're mindful in the encounter. Right. They're like, they're present in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the, you know, the cross between mindfulness. I've been looking into a lot more mindfulness work as well. And I really appreciate that uh, you bring that into your practice with uh, sexual satisfaction and, and sexual dysfunction. Yeah. It's so important. I mean, sex is the ultimate like mind body experience. I mean, let's talk a little bit about mindfulness if you don't, if, if you, if you yeah. like, what does mindfulness do to allow people to kind of improve their sex lives? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, well, overall, you know, stress is the biggest killer of sexual desire and, you know, it causes all sorts of sexual problems for people. So I think mindfulness sort of targets this in a couple of ways. One is that it's got the cognitive piece where it's practicing, focusing on the present moment while you're in a sexual encounter. So what that means is that when you're having stressful thoughts or random thoughts about, you know, your to-do list or whatever, non-erotic right. thoughts during sex, which we all have, um, mm -hmm. you're able to redirect your mind back to the present moment and the pleasurable sensations and the physical sensations that are going on. So that part's great. And then as well, a consistent mindfulness practice, right, has been shown to calm the central nervous system. So it's working against stress in kind of a more long-term way as well. So it, it makes people better able to cope with stress and also to, in the moment, be able to engage um, at, a, at a much better uh, rate. Sex is usually considered to be a stress reliever, but you're bringing up the point that stress can actually ruin sex as well, right? So what's that all about? <laughs> yeah. And you know, many people say that, right? Like they engage in sex and they feel, they feel stress relief, right? Um, yeah. And it's, it's similar to, you know, any of the activities that we engage in where we're feeling in the moment, right? It's mm -hmm. like why people enjoy, I don't know, listening to music or, you know, right. doing an artistic skill, right? It sort of takes you out of all your worries and puts you right there in the moment. Right. So you can forget about things for a while. But a lot of people have a lot of difficulty with that, hmm. you know, to get that benefit. They're having all sorts of like, you know, negative thoughts and, you know, body image and stress and um, right. stress about their sexual performance. Like it can be a stressor in itself. True. Yeah. That, you know what? That's a really good point. And I think, you know, talking about mindfulness and being in the moment um, and being present uh, you know, if you're thinking about your taxes uh, or the bills you got to pay, you know, and you know, you're having sex with your partner. I mean, imagine that's not going to be the most erotic uh, thoughts that are going to get you to where you want to be with your exactly. partner. Exactly. Right? <laughs> it seems almost that sex might be kind of like a transient, more ephemeral, like payoff, if that makes sense, like, like a more hedonic way of addressing stress relief. Is mm -hmm. that fair to say? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think so. And then, you know, you know, dealing with or managing, coping effectively with mindfulness training or other ways, other approaches that, you know, re reduce stress and allow you to enjoy that activity. Yeah. That'll, that'll improve it even further, right? Exactly. Let's kind of jump back if, you, if you, you'll entertain this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's jump back to long distance relationships and these, uh, you know, geographically close relationships. When we're talking about sex, does sex differ? You know, we talked about how long distance relationships, you know, you get really excited about sex uh, and that's a big part of it. When you have sex with these partners is anticipation or like, you know, the excitement that you'll have sex with your partner. Is that is that making sex better or is it is it I think we kind of talked about it, but like I, I kind of want to get back on like what makes good sex for long distance relationships and is it any different than close relationships mm -hmm. or geographically mm -hmm. close? And I didn't look at this in my research specifically, but I want, this is what I want to do next. And here's what I think. I think 
that when you have the anticipation for a sexual experience, it makes it better. And so this goes against what we typically think about in terms of like in our culture, it's always like, well, it's supposed to be spontaneous. It's supposed to be in the moment. Um, and that's what makes great sex. But actually what we find is that people who say they're having great sex, it is often scheduled. Right. Right. So I find that so interesting because so it's so interesting. foreign to a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I tell this to clients as well, they're like, what are you saying here? I need to schedule sex. And it's like, actually, yes. And <laughs> this is how I sell it. It's because, you know, if you think back, to when you're dating somebody, you know, people are like, oh, the sex is so spontaneous. And, and I challenge them because I'm like, but you scheduled the date. Mm -hmm. You knew you're going to see them like on Thursday <laughs> night, right? You were probably getting ready for that the day before and, you know, the day of and picking your outfit and shaving your legs and doing all these things to prepare and mentally yeah. preparing yourself for that in anticipation and in excitement for the event. So I think you're absolutely right. I think in long distance relationship, it plays out much the same way because you'd be anticipating seeing your partner, yeah. knowing that you're going to have sex and that would probably make it much more fun. Yeah. You know what? You saying it that way makes it a lot less. I, I like that you use that because it makes more sense to me now. You know, you, you set up those dates with the, you know, generally speaking, there's like that underlying assumption that, yeah, there's possibility I'm going to have sex with this person. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, I mean, it may not be like 5 p.m. sharp, but the expectations there and that anticipation can really lead to more excitement and, and maybe re you reporting better sex. Exactly. Yeah. So people that are in these geographically closer relationships, they might not be doing that as much is, is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And this is what we find like with in most relationships, scheduling of things like dates and, you know, sex and all that, it, it goes down. Um, and, you know, we as human beings, like we need more structure than that. We thrive, right, on knowing what's coming up and we kind of fall into into habits when we don't have that. So, you know, in your evening, you come home from work, you watch TV, whatever you do, um, and you're not putting that effort into intentionally planning things that are actually going to lead to your satisfaction. So things like dates and sex don't get scheduled. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Let's uh, let's talk about relationships as a whole. What would you suggest to people that are either just going into long distance relationships, maybe individuals that are now forced to be in a long distance relationship because of, you know, works now different because of COVID or, you know, you had to move away. What would you suggest for those that are in it or going to be in it or may ever be in a long distance relationship? What should they do to strengthen that relationship? Mm -hmm. I would say... First and foremost, use all of your available avenues to communicate with your partner, sexually and otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever mm -hmm. you are comfortable with and you want to use what you can at your disposal, there is um, not only messaging and pictures and videos, which we know of, but there's actually some really interesting things on the market, like, um, you know, distance controlled vibrators yes, and, yeah. and lamps and just like other things. Lamps, nice. Yeah. I didn't know a lamp before. <laughs> yeah. So you can, you know, control things that are in your partner's, um, you know, home or whatever, if you're not yeah, there yeah. and just to yeah. kind of remind them that you're there. So, so that I would say. That's is, really cute. Yeah. yeah. It's really cute and really important. Um, to keep that connection going. I think too, knowing that people in long distance relationships are 
generally quite satisfied, right? There's, they've got similar satisfaction as people who are not. So don't be discouraged about that it's going to be this terrible thing. Most people in long distance relationships say that they're coping just fine. And you can think about, you know, going back to the importance of how you think about your relationship is like thinking about all the positive things about it, you know, putting a spin on it that's somehow um, positive for you. So if it's, yeah, you have to move away for school and it's just going to be this period of time, is there an end date that you can think about? Um, Is there something else that you can do to strengthen your relationship during this time? For example, can you do schedule in a special activity like reading to each other or, you know, have a weekly FaceTime date or watch a movie remotely together um, and create sort of special experiences that doesn't have to end just because you're long distance. Yeah, absolutely. No, I really like that. Um, When you have people in long distance relationships is, are they more reliant on, um, you know, other people outside of that relationship, like friends and family? Like, is it, do they use those resources more? Do they hang out with friends more than those in geographically close relationships to kind of supplement? that yeah so it does seem like that's that's really important as well and i think that's another thing to suggest to people who are thinking about going into a long distance relationship like make sure that you also have a thriving social life outside of that where you can see other people and sort of bolster your social supports too absolutely i think you know regardless of how far you are from your partner that's always I imagine that's always a positive to have more, you know, that independence or interdependence, you know, like not being completely dependent on one person for all your support needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Um, let's talk about some myths if that's, if that works for you, Caitlin. Yeah. I, I mean, you said you have a million uh, myths here, so I, I want to kind of pick through them. I, I think it's perfect for this. Um, oh, so what yeah. are, what are the most common myths uh, for long distance relationships, for sexuality that you, that you really want to kick to the curb? Yeah. Well, like I said, for long distance, I think they get such a bad rap, but really people are quite satisfied. Mm -hmm. So that's a big, that's a big myth, right? People, they're just not as bad as you think. So that would be number one. The other one, which I touched on too, is that sex should be spontaneous. Yes. Yeah. I totally don't agree with that. Like I think scheduling it in, I mean, you know, spontaneous sex can be great too, but scheduling it in, it seems to be really key for people who have fabulous sex lives. So don't, don't knock that until you try it. Um, And then I think that this idea that we should all just know everything about sex just automatically, and you shouldn't have to ask your partner anything, and you should automatically know what they want and what they like. Right. Absolutely not true, right? That communication, that's so key. Yeah, Um, I I feel like with that communication too, I mean, I find that it's common that people are thinking, you know, communication isn't sexy. Communicating your needs or what you want sexually is a turnoff. And I don't think that's the case. No, no, absolutely not. And there's, I mean, it's, it's all in kind of how you approach that too. Um, and you, you can make to, anything unsexy, right? It, exactly. <laughs> <you> want to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's why I think being like creative about how you bring it up. But I, I mean, a great way that I've found that people um, seem to do well with is just bringing up information from like a third party source. So either bringing up a book or an article and discussing it from that perspective with a partner. Yeah. And you can even be subtle about it. Be like, hey, this is actually what I like too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, too, a lot of people feel like other people know more about sex than they do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not true. Yeah. And nobody knows. Like, it's nobody always knows. other people that know more. <laughs> yeah. And most Canadians, right, feel that they have not um, received 
you know, as much sex education as they would like. They don't have as much information as they want, would want. Mm, yeah. Right. So people are generally feeling lacking in this area and that's okay. Right. And just to kind of like accept that and go into it as like a bit of a student and, you know, dedicate yourself for your 15 minutes a week or whatever it is to just learning a little bit more about this. Cause it's, you know, it's a part of, you know, all of our lives in some capacity. Mm -hmm. What would you, um, I mean, off of that myth and misconception, you know, taking it almost treating it like a hobby is kind of like the way <laughs> I'm seeing it, you know, it's something you do. And if you want to be better at it, you got to keep working on it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, what would you, are there a couple like things that you would recommend people go to read, check out for that kind of information? Cause you said a couple of times, you know, learn more about it, dedicate some time to it. What are some of your recommendations that you could give if you don't want to give all your, you know, secrets away? Um, <laughs> What should we do what if, if someone's interested in trying to improve themselves in that way? What should they do? What resources should they look for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a couple amazing books that I really like. One is Come As You Are by Emily Nagowski. And this is, I mean, she deconstructs so many myths about sexuality, has such great evidence-based, scientifically-based stuff. Um, you'll learn a lot. Another one is The Vagina Bible by yeah. Jen Gunter, which is another great book full of um, scientifically based information. And one that I really recommend to people is um, called The Guide to Getting It On by Paul Jonatus. Okay, amazing. So listeners, definitely check those out if you're curious on that kind of reading. Those all sound like amazing uh, recommendations. Uh, any other myths? I, I interrupted because I wanted to get your expertise <laughs> on this, you know, get people to get some recommendations. Are there, I'm there are many more myths. So what else do you have if you have any? <laughs> many more. Oh my gosh. Well, I love it. You know, I still, there's so many people, and this is what I always discuss in my class at UBC as well, is that women should orgasm by penetration. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? There's this myth and it's, you know, I see people in my practice too who, who are like, what's wrong with me? This isn't working. And the reality is it's a minority of women, right? And this comes down to like, you know, I've always bring this up in like my discussion of anatomy as well, and just understanding the importance of the clitoris and for pleasure in women, right? And um, I think that's a huge myth and something that a lot of women feel sort of inadequate about for no reason, because it's completely normal. Absolutely. I, that one's so common. I, I hear that all the time. I'm assuming it's perpetuated by porn and media representations of how, you know, sex should look and how it should be. Uh, and I, it just, there's never any discussion on like anything outside of, uh, penile vaginal with penetration. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's so limiting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of any movie where, uh, there's a sex scene and you see anything other than that penile vaginal penetration or the insinuation of such. Exactly. Yeah. They need to have more representative, you know, stimulation going on in these scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And that's exactly what I mean by like people are comparing themselves to that of how it should look and what kind of pleasure they should be experiencing from what they're seeing like on a movie or in porn or whatever. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's such a limited, um, you know, representation of sexuality Absolutely. often. You've you've given more myths, I think, than anybody <laughs> ever has <laughs> on the on the episode. So I mean, usually it's like, oh, I got one myth or I can I can think of one. Uh, but there's just so many here. right? There's uh, so many. And, and I'm sure you can keep going. Do you have more? You do I'll have say, more. I'll, yeah, I'll say one more. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is like, this is my favorite thing to do like in my course because I think people, I don't know, people like it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, another one is that people should experience spontaneous sexual desire. So you should just be waiting around and then all of a sudden you'll be hit with 
sexual desire, right? Right, um, yeah. And for a lot of people, this is not the case, right? So instead of sitting around and waiting to feel this sense of sexual desire, you can actually set yourself up for success with a whole bunch of other things. So for example, um, you know, making sure that you've got the right sexual stimuli around you, keeping it in mind, thinking about sex from time to time during your day, setting up a context where you feel comfortable, right? And then allowing yourself to actually be in the moment and actually attend to all of these things and not be you know, distracted by stress or whatever non-erotic thoughts are going on. It's for many people, it's only after all of those things actually line up that you experience desire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have one question that might be a myth that you might actually be able to bust. Mm-hmm. But not just because I feel like you haven't given me enough myths today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do individuals in long distance relationships uh, cheat more than those that are in geographically close relationships. Such a good one. Yes. And this was something I looked at, right, in my research. I think people assume that, oh, there must be more opportunity and your partner is not there. But this is false. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that you can demystify that. What kind of reasons do you think that people kind of attribute that as being true? I think, you know, it's just assumed, you know, out of sight, out of mind. If your partner's not there, they're not going to be you know, they're not going to be on your mind. It's going to be much easier to find other partners. The reality is what we see is that people in long distance relationships, like they're in touch a lot, right? They're communicating Mm -hmm. all the time and they're highly satisfied. Yeah. So the motivations, right, are not necessarily there to cheat more. Yeah, no, I I mean, they all kind of, all your points that you've talked about today are kind of bleeding into this idea of, you know, long distance relationships can be very satisfying and, you know, you can really enjoy your relationship and have a strong relationship come out of it. Uh, if that's, you know, if you're invested in that relationship and you're doing all these things to kind of improve your communication. Yeah, totally agree with that. One more thing before we wrap this up, how can I, how can you, how can anybody improve their communication when it comes to sex specifically or in their relationship in general, long distance or not? What I would really encourage is set up some sort of a practice for yourself in terms of your own sexuality and relationships in general. So a reading practice, investing time into learning about yourself and your partner and using that as kind of a jump off point for discussions and communication in your relationship. Awesome. I really like that. That's that's amazing, Caitlin. Um, Caitlin, we are recording. I said spooky at the beginning of the episode. No one's going to understand what the hell I was (laughs) talking about. It is a day before Halloween. It's Hallow's Eve. I, I've had an amazing time talking with you, Caitlin. You are going to have a new app out in two weeks from now. So when this when this airs, it'll be out. Can you tell us about this? I think it's amazing. I think your initiative is so inspiring. And I've been seeing you post about it so frequently because it's it's an exciting project to be a part of. So you have to tell my our listeners what it is, what you do. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so excited. So this is a project that's been in the making for like the last eight or nine months now. And it kind of, it's come out of you know, my background as a clinical psychologist and wanting, you know, just realizing this need, right, that people have for psychology resources, wellness resources, like holistic resources for wellness. And I think this became really clear during the the whole COVID pandemic, right, that we just need more of these things, more time to dedicate to our own well-being. 
Um, and so that's what I that's what I created. So this app is a platform where people from all different types of wellness uh, modalities come together to create podcasts, meditations, courses, um, you know, seven day journeys you can listen to and participate in that are all directed towards your wellness. So we have psychologists, we have holistic nutritionists, yoga teachers, meditation leaders, spiritual philosophers, all coming together who have created exclusive content. It's only going to be four bucks a month nice. and you have access to all this and, um, and, you know, we're putting on also a bunch of exclusive events and trying to create a sense of community in the wellness space. Amazing. I, I'm so excited. And sorry, what was the, the title of the app? Yeah. So the app is called Esvedra and you can find us um, on Instagram too at Esvedra Wellness. Amazing. So Esvedra, is that S-V-E-D-R-A? Yeah. E-S-V-E-D-R-A. S-E-V-D-R-A. Okay, cool. And we will have links as well attached to this episode. So anybody can kind of check, can go and check that out, download that from, I imagine it's on all, all the app stores. There. It will be. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm talking as if it's a thing because I know <laughs> I've been doing this more. I'm like, okay, it's already going to be published. But yes, it yeah. will be as soon as you're hearing this, if you're hearing this, uh, it will be out. So you'll be able to go and check that out. And that sounds like an amazing resource just to kind of cap off what we've been talking to today. Just, you know, all of these resources to kind of continue to build yourself and improve yourself um, sexually, relationship-wise, romantically, whatever it is, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like an amazing, amazing initiative, and I'm so stoked that you've done it. Thank you. Thanks again, Kayla. That was so much fun to have you on. So if you enjoyed what you heard today, uh, please do check us out. If you're on Spotify, if you're on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or any other podcast uh, site, please make sure to follow us for new episodes. Um, Give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at BrainBuzzPod. And send us an email or join our email list if you are curious about new content or want uh, want updates whenever we're posting new stuff. Thanks again for coming on, Caitlin, and have a great day. Cheers. Cheers.